22. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him, because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. This is the Word of God. Thanks be to God. John stole my Bible from me to read from it because he apparently doesn't have one of his own. And I will admit, I felt strange walking up without it in my hand. Um, I'll start with this. If you, uh, if you knew my mother-in-law, Lisa, and had the occasion to talk with her, um, there's no chance whatsoever that you escape that conversation without learning about Jesus uh, because she loved Jesus with everything. But unfortunately for us, fortunately for her, she passed Thursday. Um, so please keep uh, her daughter Brianna and her daughter Lisa and her daughter Brooke and her son Joshua and her husband Anthony in your prayers um, as they are all grieving. It was a very, very much a surprise. Um, but I will tell you, if you understood even a portion of the joy. Um, that that she had for this, then you know it's a celebration. Not sure why I did this to myself. So, uh, if you would, we have a lot of work to do. So, First John three, uh, verses eighteen through through twenty two. Something that we'll see as John gets to work is that he will demonstrate to us that love is elemental and foundational to the Christian life. It is not elementary. And that can't be said enough, that love is an element of what it means to be Christian. Without that peace, without that block, it all falls apart. The Christian life cannot stand without love. It's part of it. Something would be wholly missing without love. And so we'll see that today as John moves through. Um, verse 18, as Pastor John read, said, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So if you would quickly flip with me to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter, chapter 13. Um, Maybe Nana has a, a picture of this on the wall in the house, right? It's next to the one where uh, there's a picture of a beach and there's footprints in the sand. Uh, Nana might have this one hanging on the wall as well. 13.1 is not what's hung on the wall, but it says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, sounds impressive, right? But have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Continuing on, and if I have prophetic powers and understand mysteries and all knowledge, aren't these the things that we hear lifted up in Big Eva today? Imagine having prophetic powers. Imagine understanding all mysteries. Imagine having knowledge. Surely this is the pinnacle of the Christian life. And I have all faith so as to remove mountains. But I have not love. I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, well, that's, we love that, right? Fox's Book of Martyrs. Nothing makes us more exciting than to think of giving up something for Christ. Maybe self-flagellation, walking down the road and beating our bodies to demonstrate that we love God. Maybe making sandwiches. Maybe talking to people that really, if you're honest with yourself, you do not enjoy talking to so that you can give them a sandwich behind the bank downtown. Maybe that makes me feel better. 
But if I do that and I don't have love, what have I gained? Nothing. So love is not elementary. It's foundational to our very existence as a Christian. If you think you can walk around this life, if you can be a believer, you think that, the, that Christ died for you, if you think the Holy Spirit of God lives in you, if you think that you have fellowship with God and you don't even care about the plight of the brethren around you, then you're deceived and the truth of God is not in you. John is focused on the implications of love for much of chapter 3. We didn't just arrive here at this concept. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, we see it says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him, beloved. We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Love is the focal point for John. Love is innately stamped in us. We have it. We feel it. We can't describe it. We really don't know what it is. Sometimes it's selfish. Oftentimes it's selfish. See Lifetime Television for Women. Sometimes love is a product. Sometimes love is evoking a feeling in people so that you can get them to do things. Maybe it's that with your spouse. That's why knowing that God is love and that God's love is not selfish gives us something to aim at. It gives us something to strive for. And it gives us something to be excited about, to know that I'm loved by God, who is love, who defines love. It's not that he meets the standard of love. It's that his very character defines for me what love is. It's deeply stamped into us. It's part of the image of God in us. There's this capacity in us to love because we're creatures, we're, we're human. And when we become redeemed, when we become redeemed believers that now trust not in ourselves, but trust in God for our everything, there's this capacity for love that's unlocked in us that was previously not accessible before the Spirit of God entered into us and took over the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which is to remind us of sin and righteousness and judgment. And this is why love is elemental and foundational to the Christian life, not elementary. Love is the focal point for John, and, and working to pull on that thread of love, he provides us with a, some couplets in verse 18. He puts together word and talk and deed and truth. These things are important. They, they come together. They form like Voltron into something else. Words by themselves, talk by themselves. Deeds by themselves, unless joined together with truth, are not loving. If my deeds towards you really come to, to satisfy myself or go to perpetuate something in your life, maybe, maybe it's called enabling someone to go in a bad direction. It is not a deed that's met by truth, and therefore it is unloving. And we have a problem with that in Big Eva today. Because we would rather sometimes serve our own comfort and avoid a difficult conversation than serve someone with our deeds also in truth. We would rather align to people in sin because it's frankly easier for me. I have less to put up with if I meet you where you are and affirm that that is okay in Christ. I am not meeting you with my deeds and love. And it's important because this house cannot stand without love. It does not stand without love. John gives application to loving biblically in verses 16 to 18, so backing up a little bit. By this, we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. 
Pause there. Christ laid down his life for us while we were yet sinners. Sometimes we want to um, appease ourselves and not lay down our lives for people until they've served us. I don't understand the need that people have for apologies. I get that it's out there. I don't, have a, I, I don't know what that does for me. I couldn't imagine putting myself in a position where I say, you must apologize to me. But so be it. Christ laid down his life while we were yet sinners. So maybe I get to take on some of the suffering of Christ for people who are yet sinners as well. Maybe I can rejoice in taking on some of the suffering of Christ, some tiny portion of the suffering of Christ. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Scriptures cannot be broken. We don't have any doctrine that comes from a single place in Scripture. There's no single mention in Scripture. That's one of those kinds of rules that has come down across the church that keeps us safe from things like having a box up here full of snakes, right, and dancing around and not being bitten by those snakes and not dying. Similarly, this picture of works and faith and love, if we look at James chapter 2 and verse 18, James says, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. He's not saying his works somehow invoke faith. He's saying his works are the fruit of faith. Meaning because he has a faith in him, those things that he, do, he does, those works that he does, they flow naturally through him. Back to John three seventeen. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Here's what he's saying. Not give people things in the church so that God will like you. What he's saying is, when the God of all creation, by His Spirit, has called you and redeemed you and made you able by violating your will to receive the very salvation of Christ, it changes you. You look differently at the brethren. Note, this is not talking about the world. This is talking about the brethren. This is talking about this particular and deep love that happens inside and among the body. If we were to look at one another and see someone in some, some state of need and say, be warm and be fed and move on about our day, is that, that's no evidence of love. That's an evidence of not love. That's an evidence that you're missing that elemental block of the Christian life to have some lack of regard for someone in their state of need. I'm not talking about state of want. I'm not talking about you know, let's say someone, for example, in the body had a sailing Mustang, and, and maybe I had always wanted one of those since a child, since a very young child. And I approached him when he said, hey, what can I do for you? And I said, you can give me that car. And he laughed at me, and it hurt my feelings. Doesn't mean he's an unbeliever. Just means he should give me that car. But that's not what this text is talking about. I am not in particular need of that car. I would take it were he to give it to me. Just, you know, to be clear. Perhaps if he wanted to give it to me in his will, maybe, as an example, I would, I would take that. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about looking upon a brother or sister in Christ when they had some genuine need, some hunger, something that they, they needed. And to say, I am able to satisfy that need, but I don't care enough to do that. That's not loving, right? That's not loving. We would not do that to one another. And so that's what the scriptures are talking about. It's, it's not trying to get you to do things. It's trying to get you to see how you interact with the world around you and understand is the truth of God in me. 
It's not trying to guilt you into anything at all. Please don't feel that. Truthfully, it is not. It's trying to get you to look at the fruits of your life and say, are these fruits worthy of the repentance that I have given to God in Christ? Because love is elemental and foundational to the Christian life, and so we can look and say, is that element there? And that's healthy for us to do. Maybe someone would say it is an outflow of the inflow of the love of God in you. John says to this audience of believers, he's affectionately calling them little children. Let us, he says, let us. He's putting himself, you know, he's talking about the body. He's, he's, he's in this number of people. Let us do this. We should all be doing this. This is what it looks like to be a Christian. So let us do that. And then he continues on, and he's going to ask in verse 19, how do we know that we are redeemed believers? And how can we be assured? Now, that's one of the blessings of the Christian life is assurance. Right? Assurance. Knowing that you know. Um, because I, I promise you, if it was up to you to hold on to your salvation, you would biff that thing. Um, we, my family, last night, we went to uh, uh, Roadhouse. That's the place that used to do peanuts before apparently peanuts could kill you with COVID. That's why they're not there anymore, because of COVID. Just so you know, peanuts have COVID. And um, one of the TVs that was playing in the background had, I, I, if, if I could find this channel, I would stream it in my home all day long. It's people falling or hurting themselves in various ways. And it's all we were watching, right? Like we were all watching this TV show because it's hilarious. Uh, there was somebody that tried to do one of those little springboard things that they do for gymnastics, you know, and she hit that and she ate garbage on the way to do it. Um, people trying to jump mountain bikes, all, all this stuff. This is what it would look like if we had to hold on to our own salvation, right? Like if I had to deliver myself from sin and be the mercy and the justice and the righteousness and the character of God, I wouldn't even get step one off before I fell and broke my nose on the ground. And so I'm so thankful for John 6 when Jesus reveals that all that the Father have given him are secure in his grasp. The picture is that we're in his hand, not that we're holding onto his pinky, just dangling. Verse 19, by this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Now, if you're a believer this morning, that is great news. If you're not a believer, not only does that mean nothing to you, it's also not for you. I wonder if you've ever heard of Tiger Bomb. The devil made it. It's in a little jar about this big, okay? And you're apparently supposed to touch your flesh to this stuff and then put it on your other fleshy parts. And it makes them feel better. Stuff works, right? It's gotten me through some pretty wild scenarios. That's great. But if you touch that stuff to something it's not supposed to be on, let me tell you what, this stuff is some laboratory strength death. Now, I know what you're thinking. I'm not going there. I touched my eye one time with that stuff on my hand and I would have preferred that you shoot me. And I was certain that my vision would never be restored again. Right? Like, I, this is it. I'm out. I'm going to wear an eye patch forever. It'll be cool. I'll put a Punisher skull on it or something. It'll be awesome. I'll look good. You would wish for death than have that stuff on places it shouldn't be. Because that's how the tiger bomb <laughs> works. It helps to dull the pain of muscle strains by outshouting the pain receptors, by making you feel like the skin over the pain is on fire. Right? I, remember, um, I remember there was this thing that they had for crowd control. 
and it was like, it looked like a satellite dish. It would go on top of like a Humvee, right? And so you can drive up to a crowd of people, and you can point this at them, and it will make them feel like they're burning. And so they'll move away, but it doesn't damage them, right? Like, I mean, apparently. <laughs> like, it doesn't leave any marks, you know, it doesn't start smelling like burning skin, that kind of thing. This is basically how Tiger Bomb also works, by masking pain with even more pain, okay? I'm going somewhere, I promise. Stick with me. This passage, verse 19 and 20, is balm. Similar to Tiger Balm. But it's balm that first calms the Christian soul who wonders, is God for me? Well, when I see the love and compassion that I have for my brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm assured that's, that's Christ in me. That's not me in me. Because if any element of me desires to serve other people, it's really to make me feel better. It's really to cover over the fact that I'm guilty about things, and so I feel like I should do this. And maybe I feel like I should do it because I'm appeasing God. I think for sure He's going to like me more because I did these things. And so I really, I'm not, I'm not doing these works because God put them before me, before the foundations of time. I'm not doing these works because I'm appreciative of the work that God has already done in me. I'm really doing these things because I think I can build a tower high enough to get to Him on my works. And you hear that, right? People talk about Mother Teresa all the time. Oh, she did so many great things, right? She's, she's otherworldly, right? Surely God loves her. I don't know. Maybe he doesn't. And if he does, it's not because of her works. All of our works. See, all, those kinds of statements, they always run into a problem with Scripture. All of our works are tested as with fire. Some are wood, hay, and stubble. Some are stones that last forever. When John 3, 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. And so as we get closer to our passage in 1 John 3, 17, we read, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Again, it's that picture of the fruit of the love of God in us. We wouldn't see our fellow believer in need and think, how can I help, and then just move on from that. We wouldn't say, be warm and be fed if we were holding a blanket and a sandwich. Right? We would provide that. Verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Our love is manifested in word and talk when it's met with deeds in truth. That's the fruit of the love of God in us. And so we come on that conclusion to verses 19 and 20. By this, by what? By loving in this way, by loving in a godly way, in deed and truth, in talk and in word, by this we shall know we're of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. This is an outflow from us. This is the fruit of what God has already done in us. This is what bears naturally. Scripture talks all the time about fruits and outflows. Um, you wouldn't expect to get fresh water from a salt well. You wouldn't expect to come up to an apple tree and get a fig. What comes out of the Christian life is Christian fruit that looks like the character of God, and that should encourage us. And so then this balm of verses 19 and 20 doesn't mask pain. It's not like tiger balm that sets your skin on fire and shouts more loudly than the pain of the muscle beneath. It first encourages the believer. That's the balm that these verses apply. They say that the practice of godly love as an outflow from a believer's life blesses us with an inner assurance of hope. It's consistent with the full counsel of Scripture on the topic, Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything. I'll read, read that again. Do not be anxious 
about anything. So that's a pretty small list of things that we are to be anxious about. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, here comes a large list, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your heart's request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Why? If I'm about prayer in every aspect of my life, if I am praying, if I am honestly letting God know every request that I have, why does that give me a peace that surpasses all understanding? Because God, who loves me, who's for me, not against me, knows all my requests, and I trust him with them. Does that mean he gives me all of them? means he gives me the ones that are in line with his perfect will. The great theologian G. Dot Brooks, would be Garth, wrote a song called The Dance. We, we don't know what we want. We're a worm. We want sinful things. We, sometimes even though we're not necessarily acting in direct sin, we, we ask for things because we think we want them. Maybe they're horrible for us. God, by his grace and mercy, sometimes withholds things that we think we want. If you're over the age of 30, and you think back on your life to the things that you thought you wanted at some points, how many of those would you go, whoa, champ, slow down on that one. You really, that is not good for you. I, there's a lot. And so we're not anxious about anything when we put all of our requests before God. And we trust him because he's perfectly loving. There's nothing that God's going to withhold for us that we need. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Pastor John Nicholas talked about that this morning in, in our study. Hope, when scripture talks of hope, it doesn't mean the, oh, I hope I got a Red Rider BB gun in that package this year for Christmas. It's not a hope of want, being able to get something, and maybe it's there if I just hope hard enough. It's a kind of a hope that says, I know that that thing is out there. It's the kind of hope that lets us endure this life. It's the kind of hope that says, I put my request before God. He is good, and He loves me, and if He withholds it, then it's because I need that withheld. It's a hope that fully trusts So how do we have this faith and this hope and this conviction? It's grown over time. You grow into it. It's given to you by degrees. Sometimes it's small little failures along the way that really builds up our hope. Um, maybe a little bit of pride wells up in us and we act out of that pride and we trip and we fall. And then God, by his grace, receives us back. He puts a ring on our hand, a coat around us, wraps his arms, gives us a hug. You little idiot, I love you. And so our hope and our faith and our conviction grow stronger and stronger. Bigger. Through experience sometimes, Right? Like when you teach a kid about the stove being hot, they do not care what you've taught them. They just attach it to the pain later and go, oh, hot, got it. Some of you have that little spiral circle burned in your chubby little palm. Hot. That's what stoves used to look like. They're coils. Hebrews 11, in saying... Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen has given us encouragement. It's excellent news. But what if we approach this passage? What if I read 19 and 20 that's supposed to give me this assurance? And I say, I don't feel that. I'm not moved by that. Frankly, I don't care about the people to my right, to my left, to my front, and to my back. There is no assurance in this passage. And that's how this balm differs from tiger balm. 
It doesn't scream over the pain with greater pain to help you ignore. It draws your attention in, and it gives remedy. Because this word is a living word, sharper than any two-edged sword. And so to the unconverted heart, it calls you to conversion. This balm applies both ways. It's not like tiger balm when I touch my eye and it ruins me. It's like scripture, which there's nothing like. So it's like scripture that calls me on to something else. So the question shouldn't be, how do I mask the burn of this passage? But rather, why does this hurt? Why do I feel uncomfortable with this? Isaiah 55.11 says, So my word be that goes out from my mouth, it should not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and it shall succeed the thing for which I sent it. So to one, this passage is an encouragement. To the other, this passage is disturbing. And it is designed then to disturb one to salvation, to convict one of lack of a conforming heart, to know that I'm missing a foundational element of the Christian life. And so if you find yourself burned by this passage and unmoved by the plight of your brethren, you need to consider whether you've been converted. Whether the God of eternity has called you to be His own. We read earlier in 1 John chapter 1, verses 7-9, through 9, but if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of His Son, Jesus, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Unlike Tiger Balm, being burned by this is not the word not working. That burn is the word working. If you're deceived and the light is not in you, though you said it was, the remedy becomes confess. And then he is able, in terms of power and fairness, to forgive you and to save you because of the work of Christ. That's why it's fair for him to forgive you it's not as though he judges some and says, but you can slide on in the side. You're okay. He judges sin on Christ. That's what, that's what happened to Calvary. That's what happened on Christ was payment for actual sin, not conceptual sin, not just the idea of sin. And if anyone becomes good enough to see that Jesus can save them, then they will be. And he just hopes that he can convince you that he's good. That, that, is, that is not a sovereign God. I think I've told the story before of, of going onto the tribal lands in New Mexico, or no, Arizona, and the local police trying to pull us over in a pickup truck. We were in a pickup truck. They were in a helicopter calling down with great interest. Driver, step out of the vehicle. And the tribal police roll up in a golf cart. They ask us what we're here to do. We tell them, and they wave the helicopter off. This is sovereignty. Sovereignty doesn't come in degrees. Sovereignty is absolute. And God is sovereign. God doesn't ask you to be saved. God saves. One John three, twenty-one and twenty-two. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we will receive from Him. Because we keep his commandments and we do what pleases him. He's carrying this thought through. If verse 18 is to those whose love is in word and talk, met with deed and truth, filtered through verses 19 and 20 for assurance, the people who are left is this beloved group of assured believers. And we said that the Scripture continues to work for both. The people that did not fall out assured are called to salvation. The people that did filter through as assured are now reassured to put their requests before God. 
So then what if we don't have a confidence coming through? Romans 8, 13 through 17. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you will put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the witness. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Lots of focus around the life being a suffering life. This doesn't mean we drag one dead leg behind ourselves and complain to anyone who will listen. We some glorify in the sufferings of the body. Scriptures have one single consistent message about us. And that is what we are, we are bent against God. All evidence demonstrates this. And then Jesus enters into the world, living perfectly, paying for the sins of all of those who will believe. The question for us becomes, will we? Verse 22 then, whatever we ask, we will receive from him because we keep his commandments and we do what pleases him. What a great place to jump into the scripture with no context whatsoever. Um, you can get a lot of people to follow you just reading that. Whatever you ask, you'll receive from God because we keep his commandments and we do what pleases him. This becomes a math problem, a formula, if you will. A formula for getting anything that you want. Right? Just read it. It's right there on the page. You, all you have to do is two things and a third thing falls out. What do I have to do? I have to keep commandments. I can keep commandments. Then I add some good works. I can do good works. And then I get whatever I ask. I mean, that's pretty awesome and pretty clear. It's right there on the page. Except that John spent 21 verses getting here. So to jump straight in and come to 1 John chapter 3, verse 22, and build an entire understanding of how God works is stupid at best, hateful, by way of degrees, I don't know that worst, but hateful of the text, does violence to the text of God. If this is an accommodation that describes to us all ways to know God, to pick through it and look for manipulative ways to think that I can get all the plastic stuff from China that I want, is frankly moronic. Right? To reduce this down to getting things in a life that's a vapor is stupid. You have to hate God and love yourself in order to even want to see that. We have a running joke in my house where someone will say something and they'll describe it. And we say, oh, it always has to have a long, oh, so what you're saying is, and then you give this like ridiculous conclusion of what that person is saying. And it, the trick is it has to not be what they were saying, right? Um, there's a, a, a slight play on that with my middle son, Taylor, um, would often repeat something that sounds like what you said, but in context makes no sense. Effectively, that's what people can tend to do with this verse if they don't care for the word and if they want to believe unfounded things. But if you have a high regard for truth and if you remember that our words and our talk must be met by deed and truth, then we'll try to understand what this means in context. And actually, because we've been reading from verse 1 of 3 John, or of 1 John 3, we're getting a little bit of perspective on what John's not saying. This is not a formula to get junk from a Chinese uh, shipping container. This is more than that. Remember those couplets. Word and talk, deed and truth. Deeds must be founded in truth. Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Titus 3.8, the saying is trustworthy, and 
I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. James 3, 13. Who is wise in understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many great mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. John stands on the overarching foundation of texts of Scripture that speak about good works and demonstrates the fruits of transformation and works that flow naturally from a transformed person are of God. In verses 1 through 11, he talks about the love of believers and that being a gift of God, making us like Him, reminding us that we have the love of God, and if we do, that we purify ourselves. That's the first three verses. Then he spends verses 4 through 11 giving us a counter-argument. For if we don't have love, then we have sin, and sin being separation from God. We saw some of the outflow of that in verses 11 and 15. Last week we talked about Cain and Abel. One brought a sacrifice that was pleasing to God, not necessarily because of the makeup of it, but because of what was in his heart to bring it. It was the fruit of what was going on in the core of who he was brought a right sacrifice, didn't try to withhold from God for some benefit, but brought what was right and did so willingly. And what did that invoke? In his own brother, his own flesh and blood, it was pretty quick in the line of people. He had to count very far before murder started. In verse 16, we were called to imitate and model God's love as demonstrated in Christ's sacrifice, which came while we were yet sinners for us. Verses 17 and 18, we were called to model this intra-Christian love and understand that that is the very fruit of our salvation and that if we see it playing out in ourselves, that should give us a, a kind of a confidence John is building a case for living as transformed people centered around love, not for manipulating God for stuff. John arrives at verse 21 to encourage us as an encouraged people that as you're increasingly abiding in God, as you're seeing the fruits of love, you'll be so radically transformed that your very prayers and your desires are aligned with God's own will. That you'll get to see God moving in your life. And this is elevated over stuff and things. Objects from China hold a very distant second to the will of God playing out in your life. So much more satisfying. It's interesting, I, I look at the end of our driveway on Tuesdays because I work from home like a trapped person. At these two trash cans. And I'm amazed every week that we're able to fill these things with just evidence of abundance. You ever wonder, like, gosh, how do I fill that? If I was to go through that, what's in there? How can we make so much packaging? And every once in a while, you know, you, you go through the house to get all the extra clothes and all the stuff that you're just going to throw away. Or, you know, maybe you're like some people, not like me. I'm, I'm okay to throw things away. I, I don't like things, except for the things I like. I also don't like other people's things, so I'm very judgmental about the things they buy. Uh, my stuff is important. 
But every once in a while, every year or so, you go through the house, you collect up a bunch of the stuff that you don't want anymore. And of course, someone else wants it, so you donate it, right, to one of those boxes around. You know, open that up and you shove trash bags full of junk into it. Those things that we're buying that are so important right now are going to end up in a glad bag shoved into a box to maybe be resold at Goodwill to someone else later. My son is into that right now. He likes to buy objects with other people's names on them. He's got like a coffee cup that says Randa on the front. This is what becomes of those things that we think are so important and we would pray to God and try to manipulate God to get those things that are nothing. They're but dust. They're where moth and rust just destroy things. All those things that are so cherished just get thrown away. In the very face of suffering like none of us could imagine, in the face of suffering that would cause Christ to bleed from his pores, thinking over it, listen to his prayer. And I think perhaps John has this in mind as he writes about being given anything that we want. Luke chapter 22, verse 42. If you will turn there, this is a good one to, to remember and to recall. This is, this is how our prayers should look. This is... Christ is about to face the wrath of God for all of those who will be saved, considering the suffering and the separation that he's going to have for the first time in eternity. And more than suffering, or more than separation, actual full presence of God, but not in fellowship. Being faced by God as all sin. And so Christ is thinking on that. And he prays like this, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This pleases God. Our conforming to his will we don't know what we want. You guys are going to leave here today. Maybe you'll talk with someone else. Maybe later this week you'll talk with someone else and say, where should we go to eat? And someone will say, I don't know. Where do you want to go? And they'll say, eh, Chipotle. I'll say, God, we've eaten at Chipotle so much. All they have is lettuce and slime and it's gross. It takes forever and they think they're cooler than I am. What about Red Robin? No, we get held hostage at Red Robin. It's like the endless fries never seem to show up. Well, what, what about the Olive Garden? No, that place actually isn't good. You just think it is. It's gross. Well, what about Subway? Mm, I don't like Subway. We can't even come up with a place to eat. And we think that our desires should be elevated over the very will of God. One theologian named Westcott wrote this, the fruit of love is confidence. The fruit of love is confidence. Why? Because it's God and me. There's zero love in this guy. There's only selfish desire. Without Christ, if I say I love you, I'm watch out, I'm probably trying to get something from you. I'm trying to manipulate you, or maybe I feel some kind of way, but that'll change. I'll be disinterested in you at some point. You'll stop being interesting to me. And that's not love. And that's not the love of God. The fruit of love is confidence. Why? Because the love of God that flows through us is confidence that God is in us. And if God is in us, he doesn't withdraw. It's not like God's like, I'm going to hang out inside Doug for a bit. But as soon as he even kind of messes up, like I'm out. I'm out and Doug's on his own. He should have done a better job before me. That's not the love of God. John Stott said that the, the final object, the final objective test of our Christian profession is love. The final objective test 
of our Christian profession is love. The great love that we have for the brethren, for your brother, for your sister, for the people to your right, left, behind and in front of you, is fuel to keep abiding. What a joy that God gives us one another to care for and to serve. The scriptures encourage us to outdo one another in showing honor. Can you, I mean, imagine an environment where we were actually trying to outdo the people around us to show love for one another. I would have a new car in my driveway right now if someone was doing that. Vroom, vroom, baby. <laughs> the great love that we have for the brothers and sisters is fruit and fuel to keep abiding. John 15, 7. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is a blessing. Because we find conformity to God by abiding in Him. We learn that love is elemental and foundational to the Christian life, not elementary. And abiding in love drives conformity to the will of God. And that's the Christian life. Abiding with God is not going to give us this outrageous desire to approach Him and manipulate Him to try to get stuff. It's just going to rot and rust. It's going to drive us in our prayers to pray for people's salvation. I mean, you do that, right? You pray for people that you know that don't know God savingly. Um, and we do that because we think God is sovereign. We don't pray to God for people's salvation because we think He can't do anything about it. And, and you know, He sent us here to try to work hard enough to go get those folks. We pray to Him because we think He can do something. And that's evidence of our salvation, that we, that we have some emotional reaction to the way that people's lives are going to be held accountable to God at some point in the future is evidence of salvation. And so we pray to Him. And we pray like Christ. Not your will. Excuse me. Not my will, but your will be done. Let's pray. God, thank you that you have given